Alright all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Welcome one and all to episode 146 of the SLS cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this would be nothing less than the Alfa Romero small family car episode of the SLS cast. Because it turns out that uh, Alfa Romero produced a line of small family cars from 1995 until approximately 2000. One of which was a five-door hatchback known... As the Alfa Romero 146. And with that little bit of Alfa Romero knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from California, it is, of course, our resident Sony employee, Tim. Now, is Alfa Romero related at all to George Romero? Because that would be a horrible relationship with your sibling. I am Alfa Romero. Like, who names. That, I mean, that would have that would be the perfect name for an only child, so he can grow up and be the lord of all douchebags or a designer of cars. I have no idea. No, no relation. None. I guess probably not though. Oh, disappointment. It's a nice hypothesis, though. It, 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 yeah, I know. Could you imagine the family? You know, get-togethers, I guess. George, what have you been up to? Well, you know, I made another zombie movie. (laughs) Another zombie movie. I designed a car. Well, Alpha, you are definitely the asshole of the family. That is right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, maybe Stephen King, if that were the case, then Stephen King could have gotten both his inspirations from both Alpha and George with Christine by having a car that acts somewhat like a zombie and comes to life on its own and kills things. Well, is Christine one of Alfa Romero's cars? Well, no, that's why I said inspiration. Oh. I don't get it. Oh, wait. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I I get it. I get it. I get it. Okay. All right. Very good. (sighs) Even though Alfa and George aren't. Even if there is somebody. Yeah, I don't know. Whatever. All right. So, how you been, sir? Good, good, good. I'm recouping from... Saturday festivities, but uh, I'm doing well. Thank you. How about yourself? Um, you know, all in all, I'm doing all right. It's been kind of a hectic last week, and I'm just going to be glad to be done with it, and we'll leave it at that. It kind of sounds like I convinced you that life is okay for you. You know, now that you mention it, it could be a little bit worse. Than, than than how it was. I mean, did you did you run over a... my life or your life? No, you, your your I, life. My life, not really, but your life, I guess. It's you know whatever. Well, I mean, if it makes you feel better, I drank a lot of beer in Anaheim, uh, where uh, where the nights, the midnight movie nights are stationed in Anaheim, California. Well, apparently, Anaheim, the city of Anaheim, they're planning on. Uh, actually, I think it was, I guess it must be the mayor, the town or the city mayor of Anaheim. His goal, God, I hope it's not his number one goal of being mayor, is to make the city of Anaheim the biggest microbrew area, brewery area in all of California. That is kind of like a big commitment. I mean, I, I don't know how long this guy has been in office, in the mayoral office, 
it's it's kind of a, a show of the times when somebody sits down and they're like, you know, my first agenda. No, it's not going to be schools. Schools are okay, but by God, I love beer, and we need more beer in the lovely city of Anaheim. And it, it's just interesting. You got Disneyland down the road and a lot of breweries. But yeah, no, that's what they did every, or that's what they do every year around this time. They have their festivals, you know, get it? Kind of like festival, but festival. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you walk around, pay the flat fee, and you get to eat and drink all you want. And you get commemorative shirts and glasses and all that groovy stuff. So that was my exciting Saturday. Though I was, I was really yearning for a St. Arnold's brew, to be honest. A pumpkinator, to be exact. Nothing can compete to a delicious pumpkinator on tap. Well, I'm glad that you had a nice time in Anaheim. I'm a poet, and I didn't. You can't know really it. say that, you know, and use that in a sentence at all. You're either, oh, you're in Anaheim, I'm you're a rebel, either going to a baseball did. game, or you know, you're going to Disneyland. That's it. <laughs> or the festival. Or the festival. One once a year for four hours. <laughs> all right. Well. Given uh, that my life is uh, boring and not really worth talking about, um, oh, except for uh, I made some new friends, uh, some some new podcasting friends on uh, on Twitter and stuff over the weekend. I discovered um, Netheads, which is really cool, a very cool tech podcast, and uh, also Mayor versus the Noob, which is a very interesting show that is kind of like it's kind of like midnight movie nights but not um but not focused on movies and gets really interesting when people start drinking so do they start the show like sober and then as the show progresses <laughs> you know it goes on they're drinking pint after pint after pint and before they know it it's like an 8 hour episode and they've had more like 2 hours but yes seems to go in that direction when they're not getting sabotaged by Rebel Stoke Jim or <laughs> having tangent upon tangent conversations with uh, the likes of Miranda Janelle and and Johnny White Trash and stuff. It's actually, you know, pretty interesting. So Ooh, um, that kind of yeah. g- gets me thinking a bit. Why don't we have our very own SLS cast drinking game? That our favorite listener at home can play along with us. And and what would the game entail? <laughs> we'll get back to you on that. Every time we use we we we, we say um, or oh uh, dear God, we don't want to kill them. We don't we don't we don't want to kill them. No, well the, the thing is we would kill ourselves. So they, I mean, the show would never post. I mean, that's the thing. Oh, I you see. Know? So, so we, we would die. play, not. So it's you and I play, not the person listening. Well, yeah, that, that's kind of the joke. That, that's the bit. You know, we, we play, and I, I mean, more than likely, I will go down first. Because I, uh, like a motherfucker. If a motherfucker... Okay. Might, I, I've um, had to resurrect my little placard here that has the circle with the slash, kind of like, you know, the no smoking circle slash thing. That has, um, you know, so, and okay in it. Because, oh dear God, was I saying this shit just way too fucking much last week and really the week before and i've also noticed that i've been slipping a little bit back into the 
thing that just pisses me off. Oh, the peanut that. butter in, in the dog's mouth. Yes. Noise. Oh, God. Uh, so I apologize profusely for that. I'm, I, and now I've got my little sign here back in front of me. And hopefully I will adhere to it. Anyway, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass on the drinking game. But I would like to address some email that we got. Email. Get on that email train. Yes, sir. Let's cast email train. We had people send email. People! Not person. People! They didn't tweet, but they actually sat down and sent an email? Yes, yes, people. Plural. I am so impressed. Oh, people. So we we have email (laughs) for more than one person. Exactly. Two different people. Two completely different people. Okay, well, I know of one person, but I do not know the other. Ah, I wanted to surprise you with the second one. Oh, okay. So here we go. Yes, this email, of course, was sent to the show at slscast.com. So please feel free to do so as well. First up, though, a quick mention from Twitter. We got a new follower, Robert England. Well, actually, England. Because it's actually spelled England, E N G L. Oh yes, uh, I saw that. R L E one one six for Twitter from Indian Trail, North Carolina. He would be Comic Noob from ComicNoob.com. and of course the aforementioned Mayor versus the Noob. Uh, this is be the Noob. It, of that show. I, I have to admit, when I saw Robert England, I did multiple double takes because <laughs> because you just have to be sure. Well, we right? uh, we, we were we were on our way out the door to head towards Festivales, and I had to stop in my tracks to look at that tweet, and it it click it clicked in maybe thirty seconds of just uh, staring at it. So. England, England. Yes, England, yes. Robert England. So welcome and thank you for following us. And of course, uh, as I said, this is the, the noob of Mayor versus the Noob, so you can check them out as well. Uh, let's see here. First actual email comes to us from our Diana, from sweet, wonderful Diana, who once again preserves in our mind why we have this email box at all. This is, uh, the actual subject is learning to drive. She says, hey guys, I just saw a movie that was well worth a trip to the theater. It's called Learning to Drive, starring Ben Kingsley. I'd really love to hear your review of it and have it shared with your audience. An eye-opening film with many humorous moments. Thanks, Diana Weeks. So, oh, god damn it, look at that. Right there on the list, so, motherfucker. Anyway, what do you think, Tim? Uh, would you like to try and cover this? We're, we're entering into Halloween season. What the Diana, fuck happened? So, Wait, what was what was the cursing? Wait, what what happened? Did you stub your toe at, at the end of that? At the no, end of that no, email, no, no, I, I I just started off with a blank so, and it's on my list of things not to say. Oh uh, well, shot. Exactly. At, at any rate, though, um, we are about to start our Halloween series this this year. We're going to be primarily focusing on the entire Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. Um, but that is still going to leave us mo- room for extra movies here and there, uh, especially towards the end of the month, though we might fill that with more horror stuff because we generally like to do so in October. Uh, but would you, would you be game, Tim, to try and cover it yeah, sooner rather than Yeah, later? you know, I, I was uh, listening to NPR last Friday, and I can't think of the, the, the actress's name. I know what she looks like. But I can't remember her name, but she was being interviewed uh, about her role in that movie. And it sounds great. So, yeah, I mean, if we don't get to it in Rocktober, uh, we should definitely review it in November. 
One of the one of the well, first ones. There you go, Diana. It is officially on the list. So thank you for the suggestion, and of course we you know stay tuned. We'll get to it and let you know what we think. Uh, last but not least, we got a special little bonus from our buddy Raphael over at We Are Not Here to Please You, who sent us an email with the subject bottle game. As per your request, Tim. <laughs> and here, here we go. Oh, oh! Is this I a, is can this confirm the... oh, that we indeed, as Germans, wait, have this game? Wait, wait, hang on, hang on, hang on. Do we need what, to give a backstory what? real quick? Back... There is no backstory. Well, well, there is, well, well what prompted this? This, this was thing? last week. It's not like this was covered weeks ago. It was. It was like two weeks ago. No, it was last it week. It was two weeks ago. Whatever. Okay, so we talked about real quick because Tim, Tim wanted to talk about women opening bottles with their vaginas. Well, not opening, but like there's there's a popular. Well, I don't know how popular it is, but it, it's like the cult. It's the cult. It's the cult game that the ladies play after they had so many Patron shots, where with they the go. It's, it's kind of like Duck Duck Goose or Goose Goose Dead, where they go around and whoever is hovering over the bottle. I don't know if they're wearing a dress, a skirt, or a muumu for all I care. I guess depending on the woman. She has to bend down and, you know, and 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 hold on to and, and nuzzle the bottle with her, <clears throat> and continue to walk around and, and place it somewhere else. Uh, of what I've heard, I don't I don't know exactly what happened. So yes, carry on. I asked if anybody out there, especially the German, if he is familiar with this game. And here we go. I can confirm that we indeed as Germans have this game, but we play it a bit different. We pick up the bottle in said way and then proceed to twist off the cap with our, quote, grip, unquote, and then we perform a handstand while keeping the bottle clenched. Yes, we combine our two favorite things, the bottle game and drinking. All jokes (laughs) aside, I know that game being played with pickles. That's... A little bit more disheartening <laughs> or disconcerting. I don't, I mean, being played with pickles. Say whatever you he want about. He didn't specify a bottle, whether or not it was jars of pickles or just pickles. What, what kind of pickles are they? Dill pickles? Are they bread and butter we pickles? Are they sliced what, what, pickles? Dildo pickles? What? No, I don't. Know. What? <laughs> I, I think episode title. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Raphael. Um, or is it kosher? It's, it doesn't say. That's what I'm saying. It doesn't. Ah, oh, so could so if you're Jewish, it could be a kosher could... dildo pickle. <laughs> <laughs> we can't segregate anybody. I mean, every, from from all backgrounds, should be able to play dildo pickle. Absolutely. Uh, but literally, it just says, "All jokes aside, I know that game being played with pickles." So I'm, I, we're going to leave the rest up to the imaginations of our listeners. And thank you, Raphael. And be sure, of course, to listen to We Are Not Here to Please You. Uh, they've definitely had uh, some new and exciting changes over there. So definitely give them a listen and uh, see what you think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're also closing in on their 100th episode, which is cool. And you may or may not hear us on their 100th episode i don't know self-plug on our own show for somebody else's show it's very meta very meta anyway so that is our new our our news oh my god that is our email and thank you again to diana and of course Raphael for sending us that email to the show at 
SLScast.com. And now, I believe it is time for some real movie news. What do you say? Good God, yes. All right, folks, here we go. It's the news. two pieces of news for us this week first up from vulture.com by way of abraham reisman mark ruffalo confirms that incredibly hulk won't be in captain america civil war i see what he did there when a melancholy hulk hopped in a quinjet near the end of avengers age of ultron only he knew his destination but it looks like he won't be touching down in captain america civil war the mega hit franchise installment will feature basically every other marvel cinematic universe Superperson. But in an interview with Italian film site BadTaste.it, Hulk actor Mark Ruffalo appears to confirm that the Jade Giant will be sitting it out because Marvel might have bigger plans for him. Uh, This is the actual quote here from the article. Quote, I believe that Hulk would be in the film, but at the end it was evident that they needed to reveal that the Hulk did something very significant and that Marvel wanted to use this in a more upfront manner. My character was inserted into the script, but it was later removed. Who knows? Maybe Hulk will never return. However, Marvel uh, Marvel wants to keep the revelation of what happened a secret because it is truly something truly significant. End quote. Um... The speculation is is that, and and from here, I'm just going into pure speculation. You, you're welcome to read the rest of the brief article uh, there at Vulture. And again, thank you for writing that there, Mr. Abraham Reisman. Um, God damn it. There's an um. Two transgressions, motherfucker. The... Idea being that Hulk does have a whole lot of things going on, in which case he could be uh, lost on, or secluded on an island for certain other aspects of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Also, he could eventually find himself in, uh, in space because of separations for things like Planet Hulk and other films. So there's a lot of different avenues that they can take with Hulk to get his own standalone movie that will probably be better received now that he's kind of an established character with the dualistic side playing, being played so well by Mark Ruffalo for the two Avengers films. That even though he is not going to be in the Captain America, there's still plenty of room to develop him or find a way to bring him back later on. And this is, of course, dealing with everything being run through 2019. So we still have time. We've got like four years to figure out what's going to happen. But what do you think, Tim? Is this a good idea that we won't be having Hulk? Or is this, for you, yet another reason to not like a Marvel movie? I don't care. <laughs> no, Fair but, it, it, but I guess got, if I wanted to see anything, it would be... The, the well i'm i'm somewhat familiar with the planet hulk storyline and if i remember cuz i remember reading about this uh, uh last week or the week before or something and uh it got me kind of doing some research about like well what the hell could they do with this guy i mean he's the goddamn hulk and where is bruce banner going to go and then i kind of found out that there there are some comics i don't know if they're like the legitimate actual marvel release of these were if it was fan made or whatever, but there was a Guardians of the Galaxy and Hulk team up series of comics. So 
I don't know if that could be a possibility or not with James Gunn over here saying that, oh, you know, with Guardians of the Galaxy, don't expect any crossovers anytime soon. So, I don't know. I mean, I would love to see Hulk in space doing something different, getting away from New York City and the Infinity Stones and all that bullshit. Do something else. So, that, that's, that's, that's what right I think. Right on, man. To kick off my news, I'm going to start off with two passings. First off here, uh, this is from last week, September 7th. Uh, actually, that was a couple weeks ago. We're recording here on September 21st. Jean Darling of Our Gang Star, she passed away at the age of 93, and this is from Variety.com. Written by Alex Stedman, actress Jean Darling, one of the last surviving cast members of the Our Gang silent comedy shorts, who also appeared in Rodgers and Hammerstein's original production of Carousel, died Friday in Rockdow, Germany. Darling broke out onto the scene in the early 20s, scoring the role in Hal Roach's Our Gang after starting to act when she was only four years old. Darling appeared in six Our Gang talkies and 46 silence. The series of shorts would become the inspiration for the 1994 film The Little Rascals. In addition to her work on Our Gang, Darling also moved into film, starring as young Jane in the 1934 adaption of Jane Eyre, she also appeared in an uncredited role in Babes in Toyland. She later turned toward the stage, making her debut in 1942 in the musical Count Me In. She starred in Carousel in 1945, originating the role of Carrie Pipperidge and boasting 850 consecutive performances in the production. And the article goes on from there. Again, her name was Jean Darling, originally a part of the original Our Gang silent films in the early days of cinema. Um, and then one other passing that might hit home for more of the, uh, the, the modern cinephiles out there. William Beckner passed away. Uh, born 1927, passed away this year. This is via Criterion.com, written by Peter Cowie. And it says this, William Becker enjoyed success in any field to which he turned his amiable intelligence Following a brilliant career at Harvard, he was one of the first Rhodes Scholars after World War II to attend the University of Oxford, where a library bearing his name stands in Wanham College. A talented actor and a gifted and perspicuous writer, he adored both theater and cinema. He turned his business acumen to working with Roger L. Stevens, a leading producer of Broadway plays and energizing Playbill magazine. Not many are aware that Bill helped to finance independent films like Shirley Clark's The Connection and then in 1965, in partnership with Saul J. Terrell, he acquired Janus Films. Theirs was an extraordinary alliance. Saul teamed with ideas for the company while Bill remained the sober observer, focusing with relentless acuity on those ideas that really could take Janus forward, as in the sale of classic foreign movies to U.S. television, for example, Bill compiled an immense dossier, listing every foreign language film with impossible reach, along with numerous beloved British titles that Janus proceeded to represent to the American public. Bill never aspired to film directing, while Saul seized his spare hours to make some absorbing documentaries. 
How proud Bill was when Saul won an Academy Award for his study of Paul Robinson, and even prouder when his son Peter allied with Saul's son Jonathan to take Janus and Criterion into the DVD and Blu-ray era. End all quotes there, and actually this is a pretty... No, actually, well, the article doesn't go on too much from there, but it's worth checking out, again, from Criterion.com, and that was considering William Becker. He acquired, again, Janus Films, where whenever you watch a Criterion movie, more than likely, if it's an older film, it's going to have that Janus logo at the very beginning. And you did hear that correctly as well. He is one of the founding fathers of Criterion, one of the very best reissuers of classic movies on Blu-ray and DVD. Uh, and they also do new films as well. So it, it's it's pretty it's pretty cool. I mean, not that he passed away, but just exactly what all this guy had done in his lifetime, as his career. And yet nobody really knows his name at all. So again, his name is William Becker. And then the very first passing that I mentioned was Gene Darling, from the Our Gang silent films. Right on, sir. All right, well, um, definitely some somber news there. Uh, but switching gears in the news world here, we're going to go to thedailybeast.com. Uh, this comes to us by way of Marlo Stern. And apparently we have based on a true story. Uh, this is actually going to go into a little bit of detail about Black Mass, which we are, of course, covering this week. So I apologize if there's any spoilers in advance, but hopefully uh, now that the movie's been out for a weekend and everything and everybody's had a chance to see it, that um, you are in for a treat by actually getting some differences in advance. Whitey Bulger's Enforcer slams Black Mass. The movie is pure fiction. You heard right. That's what he's saying. From 1978 to 1994, Kevin Weeks served as a member of the Winter Hill Gang and a close friend, confidant, and henchman to Whitey Bulger. And he says Johnny Depp's film is bogus. Quote, we really did kill those people, end quote, says Kevin Weeks, the former mobster and right-hand man to notorious crime boss Whitey Bulger. Quote, but the movie is a fantasy, end quote. Uh, let's see here. All right, we're going to jump ahead of the movie recap here and get right into it. Weeks, who was portrayed in the film by Friday Night Lights' Jesse Plemons, started out in 1976 as a bouncer at Whitey's local haunt, Triple O's, and by 1978, he was serving as Whitey's driver and personal muscle. He officially joined the Winter Hill Gang full-time in 1982, and, along with Johnny Mortorano and Stephen Fleming, served as one of Whitey's devoted henchmen. In 1999, Weeks was arrested on a 29-count indictment in a RICO case. In exchange for his damning grand testimony against Whitey, Weeks received a five-year prison sentence. He was released in 2004 and has since penned three books, including the recent Hunted Down, the FBI's pursuit and capture of Whitey Bulger, which hit shelves on July 22nd. And to say that Weeks is unhappy with the film would be a major understatement. Quote, my character looks like a knuckle-dragging moron. Uh, I look like I have Down syndrome, end quote. I actually kind of agree. <laughs> Uh, according to Weeks, the filmmakers behind Black Mass, quote, didn't consult with anyone within the inner circle about the movie, end quote, and as a result, there are major discrepancies between what really happened and what happens on screen. Uh, 
from there, it's an interview, and I highly recommend that you read it. It is a very good interview, but it is very lengthy, so I do not want to get into it too much. However, the idea here at the end of the day is that while these murders did happen, um, there is a lot of conjecture that gets translated as dramatic fact in the film, including whether or not Whitey actually did some of the killings that he did. And also the, the things that he would yell and how he would act. Like, for example, when he's cursing at people in the car, like his henchmen and stuff like that. These are things that, um, that Weeks is reporting, like, this is not how his character was. This is not how he was as a person. He was very quiet. He was very respectful. He didn't curse at his people. Uh, he also um, was disputing just exactly what kind of dad he was and how the movie kind of portrays him as going off the criminal deep end like after his son passes away, which is something that Weeks disputes heavily. Also, certain things that he personally feels like he was slighted against, like there's a they, they plan a particular mob hit in the movie, and they and and Weeks is shown receiving a bag of money that then gets transferred to somebody else, and he he's like going out going out and saying well, that's you know that's slander and everything that that scene not only did that scene not happen that way. I wasn't there, so how could I have you know been involved in that? It's, so it's things like this, and you kind of have to wonder when you're getting someone who literally was involved and was heavily attributed to all of the things that happened in this movie and as far as conviction goes with Whitey Bulger in real life, why they wouldn't go with that information, why they would not use... And again, you know, it's all politics. There's there's a whole bunch of things that go into, you know, based on a true story and all that kind of stuff. Which I always, which is why I always take based on a true story with a grain of salt and tend to just look at the movie in terms of how the movie itself is portrayed. But there and again, I'm just an... I'm just a, a, a bystander, more or less. I'm just a member of the audience. And I think it's kind of important that the people who really were involved get a say much was like much was the case with the the tom hanks movie captain phillips right that's the name of that movie right tim captain phillips we, we, we yes sir yeah there were people who were who claimed that they were edged out like you don't get a say you take this money and you you know you're not allowed to say anything um and and so they were not very pleased with how the movie portrayed them or portrayed Captain Phillips. And they're and they're marginalized. And it's kind of interesting that someone who was as involved as they were, even though the movie is about Whitey Bulger and not Weeks, is is kind of marginalized in his own way, even though he was clearly available as source material. And so I think it's important that again when it comes to movies, personally, it, when it comes to movies based on a true story, you pretty much just have to say, okay, there was a person named this and they lived. That's pretty much all you can ever take from it. And then 
just enjoy the movie as a movie. What do you think, Tim? Do you think that people like Kevin Weeks should be consulted more? Or do you think that the way they make movies should simply just reflect that it's based on? This is not the true story of X, Y, and Z. It depends. It depends on the person because, well, for one thing, him like saying that, oh, I wasn't, you know, oh, I, in, in that scene in the movie, oh, I wasn't actually there. I don't really think that's really going to help his case out any. <laughs> like, I don't think people that were, that, that were watching that scene, if he was not in that scene, they would think of him any differently because... You know, he's still the same guy. It doesn't really do anything else. Like, it doesn't really, like, cast him, you know, in, like, a darker shadow at all. So that didn't really bother me as much. What I kind of am a little bit wishy-washy on is, can he be trusted? As in, like, getting the correct information from him because of who he is and his distortion of reality. So... There's that also, but I think this movie, and I'll talk about it more later, this movie needed something else, and it could have been something that that Brian Weeks could have provided, you know, more, more of the juicy bits, and in that article, he does mention that, you know, if they just stuck to the true story, there would have been even more violence in it, and there would have been more stuff for the audience to enjoy or to get a kick out of than what was in the movie that we exactly. got. Exactly. And I was actually going to close with that because that's his last line. You could have told the quote, you could have told the truth and the movie would have been more violent than it is, but they fabricated events. The movie is pure fiction, end quote. And I agree. But, the, but at the same time, I think that he is... If his if his testimony was good enough to lessen his sentence, if his testimony was good enough to be used as prosecution, and let's let's take any potential you know prosecutorial uh, gains aside, if it's good enough for use in real life to gain the convictions and do what needed to be done to truly deal with the criminal element regarded in this story, then I think you could definitely take it with more of a grain of salt um, than what was done. Yeah, I agree with that. And I do like the whole thing where his character in the movie kind of looked like he had Down syndrome. Because the I, I love that actor who portrays him uh, so much. Je- yeah, Jesse yeah. Plemons. He, I don't, for me, he always plays some creepy ass He does, and he does, it really, he does it really well. But what I agree with him, Brian Weeks... Is that, you know, gangsters aren't always troubled. And what would have made these guys even creepier was showing them like they were like normal people. And yet they had this really untrustworthy psychopathic or sociopath tendencies lurking with inside of them. Which would have been better, I think, other than the, oh yeah, we're the henchmen. You know, we're just going to do whatever Whitey wants us to do and look the part. Well, I, I, okay, so hey, at least it's a really interesting article. It is. A very good yeah. interview. So I would definitely recommend that you read that. Again, dailybeast.com, and it was brought to us by Marlo Stern. So thank you very much. That is a great article. Awesome, awesome, based on a true story. And again, based on a true story. <laughs> so, and uh, yeah, so that's the end of my news. Close us out on the news, sir. Okay, to close us out on the news, uh, I'm going to talk about banned movies 
that thanks to YouTube and various websites, you can find these movies. And these are ones that are worth watching, for sure. This was from a September 9th article, a, a Film School Rejects article. Five blocked movies that became easily available thanks to the internet, written by Christopher Campbell. And this article came about because there's a documentary called Amazing Grace that was supposed to be shown at the Telluride Film Festival and then also at the Chicago International Film Festival. But right before, or I don't know if it was like the day of or a couple days before, Aretha Franklin, who the documentary was about, canceled. Like, she called it off. She said that I will sue you if you show my documentary or this documentary about me and this particular performance. I will sue your ass. And so this guy has this movie trying to find a distributor and he can't do anything with it as of right now, which is pretty interesting. So this guy, Christopher Campbell, created a list of five movies that you can find on the internet that have been banned for one reason or another. One of the films here is from 1972 entitled Cocksucker Blues. I wonder why that was banned. Could not have been the title. But it was about the Rolling Stones, one of the many documentaries made of the Rolling Stones, which it says here, quote, fans have a completest need to see them all. And for many years, it was hardest to see this direct cinema-style tour filmed by director Robert Frank as an observational picture captured all the excessive debauchery you'd expect of a band at the time, including a lot more sex and drugs and rock and roll. Mick Jagger can be seen snorting cocaine, Keith Richards so high he passes out, and etc. Some of it has been revealed to be staged, which is interesting. Matt, I don't know if you've, if you've seen this documentary before, but it's, it definitely captures a particular moment in rock and roll history that a lot of people suspect you know, this stuff happening, but they have never really seen it actually played out like this, especially with the Rolling Stones, you know, a, a super band like this. So it's pretty interesting. Another documentary here from 1975, this one pertains to rock and roller David Bowie, and this one is entitled Cracked Actor, and the article says, as far as I can tell, there's no official reason for this BBC documentary to be unreleased. It aired as an episode of Omnibus 40 years ago was rebroadcast in the 90s and has been legitimately screened here and there, but it's otherwise never been available by legal means. Perhaps it's out of request from or respect to subject David Bowie, who is shown as his coke-addicted worst during his Diamond Dogs concert tour. Uh, and again, you can watch it here, Cracked Actor. Another one here is Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story from 1988. This might be the more well-known one out of all these documentaries. This one is the Karen Carpenter, or the unofficial <laughs> documentary of Karen Carpenter, that is made completely with Barbie dolls. In the article says, Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story, a lot of popular director's student productions wind up being cult films, but few are as fascinating in their on-screen content or off-screen story as this short by Todd Haynes, the guy who'd soon enough break out with the 1991 indie feature Poison and eventually go on to such lavish cult sensations as Velvet Goldmine and this fall's festival darling Carol. And he did this as his MFA thesis film. And I'll just wrap this up with mentioning the last two. Trump, 
What's the Deal, a documentary about Donald Trump from 1991. And then finally, Broken from 1993. It's a collection of Nine Inch Nails music videos from their Broken album, linked through a narrative involving a man being tortured while watching the videos. The result was deemed too realistic, potentially mistaken for being a true snuff film, or at least viewed as disturbing and controversial enough that it would take away from the main point, which apparently is the music, according to this article. So yes, those are five movies that have been banned for one reason or another, but you can find them online in their entirety. And that was the Rolling Stones documentary, Cocksucker Blues, the David Bowie documentary, Cracked Actor, Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story, Trump, What's the Deal, and Finally Broken. And you can find all these detailed on the Film School Rejects website via the article, Five Blocked Movies That Became Easily Available Thanks to the Internet. And that would be my news. All right, then we will move on immediately to... Furry Square! Yes, and this week's Three Squared Final Movie Lines. Picks for final movie lines that we think are in the top echelon, among the best, if not the best, for us for now. I've got three, and I'm going to do them from least epic to most epic, but I find them all to be amazing for myself. From 1997, Goodwill Hunting, the American drama film directed by Gus Van Sant, starring, of course, Matt Damon and Robin Williams. This is the movie about the troubled young mathematics genius who struggles to deal with his potential. And as anyone is aware, there is just a lot of heart to this movie, a lot of soul-searching, a lot of gut-wrenchingness, a lot of emotional honesty that has to be dealt with. But the one cool thing about this oh and of course you know spoiler alert for anybody who's not aware because you know we have to deal with the last line of a movie so duh spoiler alerts um you you get this wonderful sensation of the way things come back around for robin williams as he discusses the love of his life and how he missed one of the best baseball games ever in the history of baseball because he had to see about a girl. And while at the time, Will can't understand how that's even possible, by the end of the film, he comes to the realization that he too needs to see about a girl. And as Robin Williams' character ends up uh, Sean McGuire is, is reading this note he has to laugh at himself and he says son of a bitch he stole my line and then of course you know we fade away to the car driving out westward ho as it were and it's just one of those things that leaves you with the hope that you need 
to believe in Will and his ability to get back with Skylar. And I always smile when I think of that. And I, and I think that that's the whole point of that movie is, is to watch how everything comes full circle and allows for Will to truly have the happy ending that he deserves. So that's number one. Number two, Dark Knight from 2008. And this, of course, would have to be Gary Oldman's little last monologue because his son is like, why, why are they chasing him? Because they have to. You know, but he didn't do anything. It's because he, he's the one. It's because it's what Gotham needs. You know, or it's the it's the city. It's because it, it, it's the hero he deserves, but it's not the one we need right now. And he's tough, and he can take it, and he's gonna you know he, he'll run and, and all the, the the wonderful the wonderful ending monologue there that Gary Oldman gives as James Gordon. It just literally leaves you with nothing but, holy shit, when's the next movie coming? And it's both amazing and simultaneously disappointing. Well, not anymore, because, of course, you can just immediately jump to the next one. But when you saw this movie in the theater, you were like, holy fuck, why do I have to wait, like, two or three more years for the next movie? That's dumb. But, wow, is it a powerful, powerful, powerful ending and just great closing line or monologue or however you want to call it. Love, love that, love that series of lines and just completely embodies everything that we love about this Christopher Nolan trilogy. Nothing more to say there. Last but not least for me is quite possibly one of my favorite movies of all time. And this would be, of course, The Usual Suspects. And here we are dealing with five guys who had the unfortunate luck, I guess you could say, to cross the infamous Kaiser Soze. And here we are left with poor Verbal, who is having to relate to the police exactly how he came to be stuck in a police station. And you hear about, you know, this evil supervillain, Kaiser Soze. Oh, be careful. If you're bad, Kaiser Soze will come and get you in your sleep. And he talks about this fairy tale, this horror story about Kaiser Soze and how he was relentless and vindictive in his revenge at one point. And, and Verbal's just like, and just like that, he was gone. And so he talks about that whole thing, and they literally just revamp that at the end when the turn is revealed and you find that Verbal is actually Kaiser Soze. And they just end, they close on that whole, and just like that, he was gone. And it just fades to black. Not even fades to black. Just cuts to black. Cue credits. I had never gotten chills at just a drop ending like that ever before in my life up to that point. And this was of 1995. So, I mean, I'm still kind of young. But, wow. Just wow. And if you've never seen... This is one of those movies that's... Again, it's a great watch it with your friends movie. Or relive it with your friends movie. Which I think that should be a really cool three squared that we should do at some point. Your favorite movies you like to rewatch with your friends. At any rate, neither here nor there. When you set them down and you just kind of get to peek over at them right when that happens and they've never seen it before. And they're, you just watch their jaw hit the floor. 
Yeah. So those are my those are my picks. Again, from 1997, we have Goodwill Hunting. From 2008, we have The Dark Knight. And finally, from 1995, The Usual Suspects. Best final movie lines for me, for now. What do you got there, Tim? Alrighty, I'm going to go in chronological order here. First up, King Kong, the original from 1933. I have to say that because there have been two remakes... One in the 70s and one in 2005. That was Peter Jackson's King Kong. But no, the original 1933 King Kong with the lovely Fay Ray. And let me set the stage for you, for those who might have forgotten. I mean, you've had a few movies now to acquaint yourself with the, the ending of this film. King Kong is in the theater. He's being held captive. He is on show for theater goers on Broadway in New York City. And then all the lights are flashing all from the bulbs of the cameras. And King Kong thinks he's getting attacked. And so he freaks out and he breaks free. And he escapes from his shackles and goes outside into Times Square, into New York City, and makes his way to where Fay Ray, where her and Jack the love interest, the manly hunk of the film, you could say, they escape to her apartment, and King Kong virtually tracks her down, and he goes up to her apartment. You know the famous scene I'm talking about. You've got to. Even if you have never seen the movie, every time you see a retrospective of the great shots or the great scenes or great movies of all time, and King Kong comes up, you always see this, where... She's in her room doing whatever, and you just see King Kong's face just looking at her, and the big eyes coming through the window, and he reaches in and grabs her in the hand and pulls her out, and yeah, and so King Kong now has Fay Ray in his grips, and he's running around the city getting attacked, and he knocks over a rail car that's filled with people, and he makes his way to the great Empire State Building, where he begins to ascend the Empire State Building with Fay Ray in hand. But once he gets to the top of the Empire State Building, P-12 planes, if you don't know what P-12 planes are, go check them out. They're pretty cool planes from back in the day. They start bombarding him with firepower, trying to bring him down, but nothing. No puny P-12 planes are a match for King Kong. He manages to swap one out of the way, and boom, a plane is gone. But he just can't take it much longer until he just kind of gives up and lets go and just falls to his death. Dies on impact. Could be a mixture of the bullets mixed with the impact of the ground. Or maybe it was love that killed him. And this is where my favorite quote, my favorite last line comes in. Where everybody starts gathering around and the director within the movie, Carl Denham, played by Robert Armstrong, pushes his way through the crowd and he sees the dead King Kong and... Somebody says, oh, what killed him? Oh, it was the planes that killed him. And his response is, oh, no, it wasn't the airplanes. It was beauty killed the beast. Music comes up and then fade to black. It is such a uh, moment. I mean, you can see this especially done well for all you modern folks out there that don't like black and white movies from 1933. Peter Jackson's 
version of King Kong does it justice. It definitely does it justice. It's more gut-wrenching and whatnot. But, God, in 1933, I couldn't imagine sitting in that theater and watching this ending where you feel something for this ape that found true love in Faye Ray's character, and he just wanted to be with her. And he didn't. he doesn't mean to cause chaos and harm and death. But he did do that. And with modern society, that comes with consequences. You know, we're not used to seeing giant monsters, so our first reaction is to shoot it down. And so during the movie, you become attached to this monster once you realize that he is the victim. Uh, and you're, you really kind of root for him. And, God, just being the iconic shot of him on the Empire State Building, even from 1933, and he just falls... And yes, that final line, oh no, it wasn't the airplanes, it was beauty killed the beast. Yes. My second last line is from 1966, the Sergio Leone classic, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. At the very end, they're having that Mexican standoff between uh, Blondie, Clint Eastwood, or the man with no name. (laughs) It's between him, Tuco, the Mexican bandito, I guess. The I mean, he's not really incompetent, but, you know, he's, he's you know, it, it's hard for him to get his way. And then, of course, the great uh, villain of the film, Angel Eyes. And so they're all looking for this gold, and only Blondie knows where the gold is. So he writes, uh, and the gold is located in a grave, and they're surrounded by, you know, a grave site in the middle of the desert. So Blondie writes, the chisels the name, of the grave where the gold is buried and he throws that rock into the middle of this open space and that moment prompts the Mexican standoff between Angel Eyes Tuco and Blondie and of course Angel Eyes reaches for his gun first pulls it up and Blondie gets the first shot in and kills Angel Eyes at that moment Tuco gets the rock he uncovers the gold he's in the grave and as he's holding up the gold so happy because he's he's dying for that gold throughout the entire movie that's the one thing he wants who's standing above him outside the grave but it's Blondie holding out a noose and so the end of the movie shows Blondie stringing up Tuco on that lone tree Tuco is basically being strangled to death as Blondie rides off into the sunset out of frame. So Blondie is past the horizon. You can't see him. And the camera goes back to Tuco and he is nearing death, just choking and freaking out. And then suddenly Blondie comes back up into frame right there, the iconic shot right there, you know, right there in the horizon, lifts up his rifle and bam, shoots the noose, Tuco falls to the ground, face first, and he's alive. Before Blondie can ride off with that shit-inning grin of his, or maybe not necessarily a shit-inning grin, but a well-deserved smirk, Tuco just gets up, pissed off, and starts cursing at Blondie. At that time, Blondie smiles and rides off, and Tuco's in the back saying this, quote, Hey, Blondie, you know what you are? Just a dirty son of a bitch. But before he can say bitch, he gets cut off by the ending music, the And it's great. Hey, Blondie, you know what you are? Just a daddy son of a So yes, the good, the bad, and the ugly from 1966. And finally, my favorite, 
my th- one of my favorite. I mean, I guess all th- these three cannot just be my only favorite. There are many of them. But my third choice is from 1974, Roman Polanski's Chinatown. Yes, at the very end of the movie, when you find out the main... I guess you could consider him a main antagonist, but you find out this guy that J.J. Giddies, Jack Nicholson's character, has been questioning throughout the movie and kind of suspecting of of doing the naughty things that the movie is about. Uh, You find out that he is actually an incestuous father. That character, of course, is uh, Noah Cross. And his two daughters, Faye Dunaway, Evelyn, and Catherine, can't remember that actress's name. Evelyn's sister is really her daughter, which that was kind of the big reveal at the end of the movie. Very shocking, especially back in the 1970s. In fact, actually, that ending totally holds up here now. So once they find out, Evelyn takes her daughter or sister-daughter or whatever, and they flee into Chinatown. And it is at that time... When she gets shot, she gets murdered. And J.J. Giddies just can't believe it because she is also the love interest of J.J. Giddies. And it's the final line where he's trying to make sense of it all. And he can't, like, there's something has got to be done. There is an injustice that needs to be made right. And that's when Lawrence Walsh, played by Joe Mantell, he is the partner of uh, Jack Nicholson's J.J. Giddies, comes up and... He says the line, the famous line, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown. And that's the end of the movie. The music swells and fade black. You know, the camera moves up, pans up, and that's the end of the movie. What a great line, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown. It works because that line in itself, despite everything that's going on, or along with everything that happened, all the really messed up shit that happened, it acknowledges the corruption and that absolutely nothing can be done about it. It's definitely one of the more cynical of the best final lines that I've I've chosen here. However, it is very fitting for the film's rather bleak ending, you know. And from one of the best films that came out of the 70s, I mean, arguably it's one of the best films ever made. And just what a perfect line to really end in that perfect somber note. Some of my three favorite ending lines are from King Kong, 1933, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, 1966, and again, Chinatown from 1974. And that's it. All right. Well, then without, uh, let's see, next week, I guess, before I say without further ado, (laughs) I suppose next week our bonus segment is going to be I'm the only one who hated it. Yay, we haven't done that for a little while, and it's actually one of our least done bonus segment so we're gonna go ahead and do that next week and without further ado that brings us to the movie So this week's movies are Black Mass, Everest, and My Left Foot. Where do you want to start there, Tim? How about our classic pick of the week, My Left Foot? Alrighty, My Left Foot. The Story of Christy Brown, 1989 Irish drama film directed by Jim Sheridan and starring Daniel Day-Lewis. This film ended up actually getting a whole bunch of Academy nods and two 
wins one for best actor and best supporting actress and this comes to us from 1989 again so it was at the 1990 academy awards and this is about christy brown who has uh, cerebral palsy and his development into doing art and just exactly how smart he was and how he was ultimately able to overcome certain aspects of his cerebral palsy so that he could interact with the world and become more than just a a seemingly no no good invalid more or less this is a film where i i actually uh, just watched the director's cut of um tropic thunder last night and more or less on a whim and you're reminded by rdj's wonderful character you know never go full retard and it's kind of interesting because this is literally the embodiment of that speech that he gives and you see just exactly where the line should be drawn and how well Daniel Day-Lewis draws it. And so this is definitely a very, very good character study and a lot of fun. The only thing that I would say is having never seen it before. So I am definitely coming into this film, what, 26 years late, basically. I have to say it, it, didn't age 100% well. And where I would say that it does not age well is actually in all of the familial relationships that Christie deals with. It seems that it's more or less set up as just a vehicle to allow the sympathy card to be played, which makes it a little bit easier for Christie to, for you to empathize and not, no, I take that back. Not empathize, but to make you sympathize with, or have sympathy for instead of empathize with the character. Now, that doesn't take anything away from Daniel Day Lewis's performance, but it's almost like it's trying to make you feel that way instead of allowing that to occur naturally. Now, outside of that, the film is still fantastic and definitely tugs appropriately at the heartstrings and makes you laugh where it should and definitely relieves itself of trying to uh, basically beat you over the head because the film is not trying to do that, which I applaud it for. And I think that's why it was so well received at the time, because it wasn't just one of those, you know, oh, it's such a touching subject that you have to like it or you're an evil human being. It's not that kind of movie. But I felt that it was just set up to make it a little bit too easy. So with that being said, I still have to give this one 4.5. It's a fantastic movie. Daniel Day-Lewis once again showing you just exactly why he's one of the best actors we've ever had of this generation, or of, yeah, of that particular generation. What do you got there, Tim? If you were to read this film, I guess, on paper, even the book, maybe, I, I'm not sure because I've not, actually never read the book, or maybe even, even the script, it, it would be kind of interesting to read this script because I'd imagine that it would come across more grim and unsettling than 
entertaining and, and often comedic. I mean, in fact, this film could have been very grim and unsettling if it weren't for Daniel Day-Lewis's very human and Oscar-winning portrayal of Christy Brown, as well as Jim Sheridan and Shane Connington's screenplay and Sheridan's direction. Because of this perfect storm of filmmaking, you do get a film that isn't trying to make the audience feel going against what Matt was saying. I believe this is a film that isn't trying to uh, to make the audience feel sympathy towards Christie and the poor Irish Brown family. But instead, you get a film that people can somewhat relate to, even if they don't have a disability of some kind. The story looks past his disability and focuses on the man who is Christy Brown and what exactly makes up his character, such as his loving family and especially his mother, as well as what inspires his great artistry and his many other accomplishments. And this is definitely an all-encompassing movie. It just doesn't follow up to his, his death. They left it out. Because they they end the movie on a very high note, because he ends up marrying this woman that he is just completely in love with. In real life, he does as well. But there is some speculation that she turned out to be a conniving whore, pretty much, and would abuse him emotionally and possibly even physically. Because when they found he basically he pretty much killed himself. But so when they found him dead, they found all these marks on him that in some way could have been linked to being forced to do something or being grabbed too hard or just being roughed around. And I, I think after reading about that stuff, it kind of left a, a weird feeling within me at, at the end of the movie. You know, like, oh, it's happy. I mean, it's really, really happy. It is the classic ending, but in real life, it didn't really go that direction apparently. And I can't take it away from the movie because we're just reviewing the movie itself, not the history. And a movie itself, as I mentioned just a little while ago, it's really good and really well made. The script is beautiful, the story is beautiful, and uh, the performances are, are spectacular and spot on. However, my only complaint is that due to the movie being 26, 27 years old now, how it was shot, how it was made, it felt, it feels a little old-fashioned. And I struggle with coming up with if that's a good thing or a bad thing or, or not. I, I just, I'm just not sure. So I think I'm just gonna sit on 4.75 out of 5. Originally I was gonna say 4.5, but I can't really knock the movie for feeling old-fashioned when really it didn't take away from the overall enjoyment as much. So 4.75 out of 5, my left foot. Alrighty, sir, where do you want to go from here? How about Everest? Sounds like a plan. Everest 2015, UK-American Icelandic 3D disaster drama and adventure thriller film. This is uh, directed by <laughs> Baltazar. That's what it should have been titled. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. And stars Jason Clark. Josh Brolin, John Hawks, Robin Wright, Emily Watson, Kira Knightley, Sam Worthington, Jake Gyllenhaal. Oh my goodness, so many people. And is the uh, it's it's a story based on the events of the 1996 Mount Everest disaster. Uh, it focuses on two different 
expedition groups, one that was led by Scott Fisher, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, and the other uh, played by Rob Hall. I'm sorry, the other led by Rob Hall and played by Jason Clark. This film, uh, I saw it in IMAX 3D, and this is a film where pretty much a lot of bad things happen to a lot of basically good people. And I'm not going to go into all the ins and outs. This is a movie that has quite a few very solid actors and very and a few very high caliber actors involved. And what frustrates me about this film is that you have all of these actors who could do so much with this material of the story but instead of letting it go where it was where it could have been written well they instead lean on cinematography which thus gives you the IMAX and the 3D experience I found this movie for me to be ostensibly a gimmick is a gimmick thriller. This is not a movie that you, unless you've got the massive 3D Blu-ray experience that you can recreate at home, this is not a movie that's going to have the same kind of level of impact as if you go and actually see it in the theater. Because it relies on, oh my gosh, everything's falling, oh you're oh my gosh look at this person as they blow off a cliff or as they hang on for dear life and the camera moves in such a way that it provides you that vantage point and oh look down and it's just designed to put you in that space for people who aren't thrill seekers and will not be in that kind of a space it just kind of creates that thrill and everything and in and the drama of these people who truly lose their lives is lost in that. And it's really sad because there's so many good actors and uh, actors and actresses. I keep saying actors, but I, I do mean actors and actresses that you've got great source material that you could just let that source material do the work and let, and let the, and let, and let the cinematography be the backdrop that drives it. And it's almost like it's the other way around. And so for me, it felt extremely gimmicky and something that will not translate to home media well at all. Unless, of course, you've got thousands upon thousands of dollars into your home entertainment center. And so consequently, I've got to land on 2.75. It's definitely not a terrible film. It's not even really a bad film. But this is not a film that I think necessarily warrants spending 20 bucks minimum to see per person. And yet, it is a spectacle. And you cannot deny that about this movie. So 2.75. There you go, Tim. What do you got? A very important note to make about this movie is that it's technically impressive. From start to finish, the production never looked cheap, fake, or even rushed. The designs of the effects, the lighting, and the designs of the peril itself 
was consistent throughout. And this in itself is a worthy achievement because a number of the more recent disaster or those in-peril flicks, kind of like San Andreas, have many moments of ludicrousness that look cheap. I mean, yeah, San Andreas has some really good effects, but it also has some really bad effects. Also look at, uh, oh shit, what's his name? From He did Independence Day and 2012, The Day After Tomorrow. That guy. He has some good, decent movies, but all the effects aren't consistently fantastic and believable. But the effects in this movie works from start to finish. However, I feel that this movie, unlike Matt, does not need to be in 3D. It was not planned, nor even shot to be in 3D, so it could have been something spectacular and or inspiring if it were actually planned and shot in 3D. However, the conversion process doesn't add any additional depth whatsoever, though the large screen and the wall of surround sound does help. And again, Matt and I saw this movie, the pre-release, the IMAX 3D pre-release, and this movie will be re-released this Friday, uh, September 25th. So actually, uh, today, <laughs> depending on when the show's post. Today, you can go see it now and pay 8 bucks, even, depending on where you are. If you're near me, it could be 15 bucks if it's after 7 But the movie does work on the emotional level, especially at the end, which is where I did get a little bit teary-eyed due to the flick's true life, you know, basis. The movie also works on an emotional level because it's not relying entirely on big effects, big stunts, or even a large budget. I think the budget for this movie was only $50 million, which is hard to believe. It, It goes to show you that they shot a lot of this stuff on location, and did a damn good job superimposing and and making you feel like that they were actually at Mount Everest or near something that was comparable to Mount Everest. So again, the movie does work on the emotional level, but I felt that the film and story could have used more direction and style other than relying on the true story and the real characters. And this could be achieved via editing, Uh, the pacing of the movie. The film could have led you to be more hopeful for the characters that didn't make it and more fearful or worried or even on the edge of your seat for those that did make it because it felt like you kind of had a good idea of who was going to make it out or who didn't make it out. And the movie could have used more of a umph, more of like an on the edge of your seat feeling. And this, it would have worked perfectly especially with it being a 3D IMAX movie. So yeah, I mean, that's I, I thought it was a good movie, a solid film, but just could have done more, uh, just could have used more style and more technique than just relying on the story and the characters themselves. However, I did enjoy this movie. I do give it 3.5 out of 5. I was surprised, and you know what? I think it's well worth seeing it not in 3D. You don't have to see it on a huge, huge, huge IMAX screen, but check it out when it's in theaters. Throw eight bucks at it, throw 12 bucks at it. I think 12, $13 is totally worth it for Everest. Again, 3.5 out of five. Yes, and just a side note on Everest. I All of my complaints about that, especially with spectacle and everything, um, it would not due to the fact that I thought the special effects were bad. I definitely agree with Tim 
that special effects, cinematography, very, very good. So I, I, if, if that was not clear or if it seemed like I was uh, jumping on that, then that was not the case. Also, did happen to check before we recorded, and you can, at least here in Texas, you can see Everest in regular theater mode now, as of the 22nd of September, which won't matter because it'll be the 25th, more or less, by the time you... (laughs) Whatever, fuck it. So last but not least... Black Mass, the 2015 American crime film directed by Scott Cooper. And it is based on the book Black Mass, the true story of an unholy alliance between the FBI and the Irish mob. This is uh, starring Johnny Depp and Joel Edgerton. Also features Benedict Cumberbatch, Kevin Bacon, Jesse Plemons, Corey Stoll, Peter Sarsgaard, Rory Cochran, and Dakota Johnson. This is, of course, the study and the study of the crime spree and the rise and subsequent fall of primarily James Whitey Bulger, and of course, the counterpart in the FBI, John Connolly, played by Joel Edgerton, where James Bulger was played by Johnny Depp. There are certain times when a character gets a lot of credit for being a character simply because of the makeup done to establish the character. And the actor is then given a lot of credit simply because they look different. This is not one of those times. For me, I found this to be a complete return to form for Johnny Depp. One person that I think is I, I think is really going to be cast aside in this regard is Joel Edgerton, who I think, while there wasn't necessarily, you know, makeup and all this kind of stuff that was done anything special to accentuate his character, I simply think he did just a fucking fantastic job of pl- portraying someone who loses himself in the idea of what he is doing being right. And shows you the folly that can come when you say the ends justify the means. And I, and I, and I want to make sure that Edgerton gets his due in that regard because I thought he did just a phenomenal job. And everybody's going to be focusing on Johnny Depp. And the reason why is because it's not just makeup that that allows you to escape into this character and forget that it's Johnny Depp. It's because Johnny Depp actually embodies the creepiness that comes from someone who is just simply not afraid to kill you. And it's fantastic to watch. And it literally causes you to forget who Johnny Depp is you you lose yourself in that character and yes the makeup helps and everything like that but you still know it's Johnny Depp until about mm, 10 12 minutes in when you forget and another special nod just for sake of great dialect coaching and everything Benedict Cumberbatch you'd have never figured that he was not British by watching this film 
Now, all of those things being said, the one thing that keeps me personally from giving this the full five stars is that the movie needs more than just to say, this is a bad guy and we can just let someone be who they need to be and not worry about everybody else. All of those people who surrounded Whitey Bulger, whether or not they needed to play a bigger role in the movie, were still having to act around him. And while, for the most part, people really did do a great job of holding their own against such amazingly and thoroughly charismatic characters... Sometimes you have to rein in the bright star just a little bit to allow everything to even out instead of just having this one one or two characters these one this one or these two characters in the case of Joel Edgerton just simply outshining the rest because it just it causes all the performances of the supporting cast to falter by the wayside, in a more obvious way. That being said, and again, relating to the article where I am simply basing this on the movie itself, acknowledging that it's just simply based on people who actually lived and not the factuality of it and not whether or not these things happened exactly as they were supposed to. I got to land on this one at 4.75. I did not realize literally did not realize that two hours had passed. Not to mention even sitting through most of the credits. Didn't realize time was passing. And I think that especially in a thriller, you simply cannot ask for more than that. 4.75. Bring us home, sir. Oh, yes, you can ask for more than that. (laughs) Or at least I did. It was a good movie. A good movie that has a uh, that that had a, a lot of little bitty big problems, and I fell asleep. I mean, I didn't fall asleep, but I got really kind of restless during the movie. And I normally don't get restless. I can't remember the last movie I got restless during. It, it really didn't hold my attention from beginning to end. And I think some of the reasons was because of his makeup, Johnny Johnny uh, Johnny White Trash. No, Johnny Johnny Depp's Whitey Bulger make makeup made him look a little too unbelievable. He kind of looked like a, a cross between a demonic grandpa and the Hobgoblin. The performances were really good though, but I thought that the filmmaking lacked all the juicy morsels that it really needed, that a good thriller, in my opinion, really needs. It needed more of those power scenes and moments that can add depth to a character. There are definitely those scenes in there, but they're mainly moments and not necessarily scenes. And a lot of those scenes are you like knowing like, oh damn, you know, you know something, it's gonna build up to something. And then sometimes that something comes to fruition, and other times it doesn't. And therefore, that feeling becomes just unreliable over time. There are a couple human moments with Whitey Bulger, like with him and his kid. However, those human moments really don't add up to 
any to to much of anything by the end of the movie. It really doesn't add anything to his character. I wasn't even sure what they were trying to do with this character. If you if they were trying to make him a little bit more relatable, if they were trying to show you how crazy if so he was, I I I'm just I just wasn't sure. It, unless I missed something. Uh, which I very well could have, and this could easily be one of those movies that you can go back and watch at home and have a better experience, which I'm looking forward to going back and re-watching it whenever it gets released on Blu-ray or digital, whatever. But as of right now, the movie just didn't live up to my expectation because I too was really looking forward to it, but I just needed more than just Johnny Depp in, in makeup. I mean, his tooth, the one, the, the, the bad tooth he had was distracting as shit to me for some reason. His wrinkles looked a little funky, and it, it's just like he played that one character the same way throughout the entire movie, and there was really nothing else to grab onto. And that goes for the movie itself. It starts off one way, and it ends the same exact way. Yes, the story is great, but like uh, what the one guy that we talked about in the news said, you know, it just needed something more. And it could have been the true story itself. Could would have, I mean, the the actual true told story could have been what this film needed. So right now, I give this one 3.5. Again, I needed more than just really good performances. And I do agree, Joel Edgerton did a great job as well as Cumberbatch. But right now, 3.5 out of five right right on right on uh, and while i respectfully disagree i'm glad that uh at least we made it into the into the 3.5 range <laughs> i was a little worried there that we were going to get to like the twos and we were going to have to have a little knockdown drag out or something <laughs> anyway <laughs> uh all right so next week though we are going to begin our nightmare on elm street a thon Nightmare on Elm Street a thon, I get that. Ooh, it's Rocktober. Yeah, that's Rocktober. Right. But we are actually gonna do four movies for next week. And the this bonus movie is actually a documentary on the entire series of Nightmare on Elm Street, and it is also four hours long. Tim and I are gonna try and get through the whole thing, but we are but the idea is really just to be able to have a reference tool for additional behind the scenes things and legacy ideas and and the 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 way that it's influenced stuff so that we can better serve the reviews that we're going to be giving for the entire series. And we are including it just so that you can also follow along with that if you choose to. And you can maybe just watch the first 45 minutes, maybe that's all it's going to cover for the movies we're going to cover per week and so on and so forth. So, the documentary is Never Sleep Again, The Elm Street Legacy. And this is available on Netflix. And then, of course, we are going to be doing the first three Nightmare on Elm Street films. A Nightmare on Elm Street from 1984, of course. Then A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. And A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. Turns out there are nine films in the entirety of the franchise. And that includes both... Uh, Wes Craven's New Nightmare and the remake from 2010. So, fun times. We'll be covering them all. And that, I do believe, brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on! Oh, 
Alrighty, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. We, of course, are still the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can even follow us on Twitter at the SLSCast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can even climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that is your heart's desire. And, of course, you can follow us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Kevin Bacon, I get to say this. I really believe that all of us have a lot of darkness in our souls. Anger, rage, fear, sadness. I don't think that's only reserved for people who have horrible upbringings. I think it really exists and is part of the human condition. I think in the course of your life, you figure out ways to deal with that. And this is Tim saying, take your guys, and we'll talk to you next week. Cinephiles. again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.